Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. My question for you this morning is I, I want you to maybe just reflect and think a little bit if you've ever found yourself in a moment where you felt like life was just chaotic. It was just kind of a, a mess. You felt like things were just kind of spinning out of control. You felt like you were a, a, a victim of bad luck and you kind of just were overwhelmed by the sense of I mean, I guess you could say meaninglessness of just all these things were coming at you and all these things were working against what were you were trying to do. They came at you sporadically. They came at you uh, um, in a way that you were unaware they were coming. They hurt you. All these different things. If, have you ever had a moment in your life where you were just saying to yourself, man, this is just chaos. Like This is just a mess. And there are times, even when we're out of that mess and we kind of look back or we look ahead or we're just thinking about where we are presently and we think to ourselves, I wonder if there's any purpose to all of this, right? Is there a plan to all of this? Is, is history just like a, a collection of cries of a madman, you know? They're just sporadic, no meaning, vocalizations, just random, not, not strung together, right? Is that really what my life is, the cries of a madman, now, the Bible has a totally different perspective. The Bible doesn't see chaos. The Bible sees a plan unfolding. The Bible gives us a perspective that, yes, there are things that seem out of control, but they're ultimately in his control. He has a plan. History and your life, it's not the sounds of a madman. Rather, it's the sounds of a divine symphony. God putting every major and minor chord together perfectly, moving the story of the song of God forward with each movement. The Bible gives a totally different perspective when it comes to the arrangement of the details of our life and the details of history. It doesn't give us chaos. It gives us God's control and God's plan. And because of that, we can be courageous. We could step in, we could take risks, we can know that there's a plan unfolding in our life and nothing in my life will slip past the sovereignty of God, but he will intend it to unfold his plan. Totally different perspectives. 
As we close out the Old Testament, I want us to really capture that idea for ourselves. We're going to jump into the book of Esther. And in this book, it it really is a book of very dramatic chaos, where you have a moment where the characters in the book are facing these life-threatening situations, and they're put in these moments. And at the very center of this book, there'll be this kind of catalytic and climactic moment where the main character of the story, Esther, will realize the plan of God that she can be a part of. And because she's sure that God's plan is unfolding, that, that life isn't chaos, it's not just all a mess, knowing there's a plan of God causes her to, to take a risk and to take courage to make a godly choice. And that's what I'm hoping for you today, is that you'll get from her life a principle that you could apply to yourself, that you can take risks because there are no accidents in your life. In fact, that's part of the big idea for this morning. So you're going to write down one thing. I want, to write, I want you to write this down. The big idea today is this. No accidents, only providence. No accidents, only providence, right? Accidents are those moments of they're, they're unintended. They're usually unfortunate and, and we're unaware of how they maybe arose. We, we didn't see them coming. And it's just these, these moments where we get injured or these moments where we, we suffer a loss. It seems like from our perspective that life is full of accidents. But again, the Bible gives a different perspective. In fact, the Bible gives this perspective. There are no accidents. There's only providence. Providence is God's intervention in your life. That everything that happens in history is a part of God's plan. Now that doesn't mean that God is pleased with everything that happens in your life. But it does mean that God has a plan for every part of your life. Every detail is in the plan of God, even if it doesn't please him. And because there are no accidents and there's only providence, you can take courage. You can take risks. You can venture out and make godly decisions because you know God's plan is unfolding. Now let me show you this. Go to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 1. But before we get there, i got to really summarize what's going on so far from Esther 1, 2, and 3. Here's what happens. We're in the setting of the Persian Empire. And the people of God, the people of Israel, at least some of the people of Israel, are still in the land of Persia. Some of the Israelites have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Under the Persian king uh, Cyrus, they were allowed protection and resources to go back and rebuild their, their temple. The people of God lost their land to the Assyrians first in the north. They took the northern tribes of Israel. Then Babylon came in and took the southern tribes of Israel. Then the Medo-Persian Empire kind of took over for the Babylonians. And now some of the people of God are still under Persian rule. Some are in Jerusalem and others are in the, under the Persian Empire. Well, the Persian king of Esther's time really wants to show the extravagance of his wealth. He has a, a vast empire and he wants to show it off. So he decides to throw a huge party. And, and this party lasts like half a year. I mean, this is a really, really, really big party. You thought like your kids trying to have like a birthday month was something. Well, this king, this king has a party for months and he extends this whole party and the whole point of this thing is really prideful it's just an exercise in vanity he just wants to show things off well one of the things he wants to show off is his wife he wants to show off queen vashti he wants to show off oh look how beautiful i've got the prettiest one in the kingdom very chauvinistic right he didn't go through our men's ministry groups 
If he would have, he would have become a better man, right? But the king did not do that. Well, Vashti, she's kind of a feminist, and she's like, no, I'm not doing that. No. So she denies the king, and the king gets furious, and he says, fine, you want to stay in your room? Stay in your room. I'm going to replace you. Again, should have gone through, you know, Doug, uh, Stephen Mobley's group, right? The nine attributes of a, of a good godly man. He should have gone through that class. Okay, so he says, you know what? I'm replacing you. So he starts his whole campaign to replace Queen Vashti. And he finds a replacement in a Jewish woman in his empire. And her name is Esther. And she's the central character of our story. So she then moves into the palace and she is now queen. Well, Esther was raised by a Jewish man, a relative of hers. We're not certain their, their connection, but we know that he's a relative. Her parents die young, so he kind of raises her as his own daughter, and his name is Mordecai. And Mordecai is a very devout Jew, and he loves Esther, and he, he maintains a connection with her even when she moves to the palace. But Mordecai finds himself in a problematic situation. One day, Haman, this political, this Persian political leader, is kind of parading himself out in front of all these other officials. And all the other officials are bowing down to Haman. And Mordecai refuses to bow. And it's not because Mordecai is like a rebel or he's trying to be insubordinate or disrespectful. It's because in that culture, in Persian culture in that time, to, to bow was not just an idea of respect, it was the idea of reverence. There was almost an act of worship there. And Mordecai, being a devout Jew, he cannot worship anybody besides the one true God, Yahweh. So he refuses to bow. And Haman gets furious. You thought like the king being annoyed that Vashti wouldn't come out, you know, and be shown off and all that, those other things. Like Haman is just, just enraged. And so he goes up to the king and he says, king, we got a problem here. And he tells the whole story about how Mordecai won't bow. And he says, we got a problem and it's bigger than one man. It's not only this guy, but it's all his people. It's all these Jews that are in your empire. Let's destroy them. And the king says, okay, let's do it. I mean, it's, it's a drastic plan there. Which probably leads us to believe there's probably some anti-Semitic uh, movement going on in the Persian Empire, either in the leadership or amongst the people. Maybe there's some other annoyance that was going on. But, but Haman seizes this opportunity. The king decrees it. And so a decree goes out that the, the Jewish people are going to be destroyed, eliminated from the Persian Empire. And Mordecai is distraught. Let's, let's look at how he receives this decree. Esther chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put, up, put on burlap and ashes and went into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gates of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. Now, now stop here. This tells us something about Mordecai. Notice what he does and what he does not do. What he does is he rips his clothes. This is a, a symbol of, of intense grief and mourning. He replaces those clothes, it says, with burlap and sackcloth and what was probably a garment made up of goat's hair. And he puts ashes on his head and he is yelling and he's wailing and he's screaming and he is making a public scene. But notice what he does not do. He won't enter into the palace. 
He's not allowed to. Now, now think about this. That, that kind of gives us some insight as to this action of not bowing to Haman, this political official that caused this problem. Is Mordecai just insubordinate? Is Mordecai, is he just a rebel? Is he just rogue? Just, I don't care about the laws of the empire. No, because he respects the law of not going into the king's court. He respects that. Because he knows in these clothes, in this attire, I can't go. If he was a rebel, he would just sort of barged in. I mean, clearly he's not afraid of a public scene. He's being very public about what he's doing. It shows us that, that Mordecai believes there are times where you need to follow the rules and there are times when you need to break the rules. I think for Mordecai, we could see that if, if the rules of men don't break the rules of God, then we got to follow the rules. It's when the rules of men break the laws of God that we have to break those rules. And bowing in reverence to Haman would be breaking the command not to give worship to anybody else. So he has to break that one. But not intruding into a place that he didn't belong, that he wasn't welcomed, he respects that one. Again, we see he's not just being insubordinate, he's just not compromising his religious conviction. So he gives this whole display and he's now close to the palace. So Esther, the one that he's raised, sees him from far away and says, what is going on here? Right? Look at what Esther does. I'm in verse 4. When King, or sorry, Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused. Then Esther sent Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was mourning. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Apparently, in palace life, she was not aware what was going on with the rest of the people. Because she sees Mordecai, the one who raised her, just in all this kind of attire, goat hair and ash on his head, yelling and screaming, and she's thinking, what is he doing? So she gives him clothes, probably not because she's embarrassed by him, maybe more because she's like, I need, to, I need to figure out what's going on, but he can't dress like that if he's going to come near here. So I'm going to go send him clothes, maybe he'll clean up, and then that way we can talk. Whatever is happening, Mordecai is definitely at a stage right now where he is putting his daughter, or his adopted daughter, in harm's way. I mean, think about it. It wouldn't be that hard for people to start to figure things out a little bit. Wait, a decree just came out that we're going to exterminate the Jews. This came about because this man, Mordecai, over here, wouldn't bow to Haman. Clearly, his mourning, his wailing shows that he's of Jewish descent. Now he's by the gate. Wait a second. Isn't this the guy who always talks to Queen Esther? How are they connected? It wouldn't take long. It wouldn't take long for people to figure out, wait, is Queen Esther a Jew? Because she has hidden her heritage from everybody. And Mordecai told her to do that. As she was on her way to the palace, Mordecai said, you know, you got to keep this thing under wraps. This won't be favorable for us. But now Mordecai is putting her in harm's way. And I think he's doing that not because he wants to harm her. It's because he knows she's our only hope. She's our only hope. I mean, if the king is really indifferent to the Jewish people, 
maybe if he knows his queen is a Jew, he'll have some empathy. There'll be some affection. He'll realize, wait, I I love Esther and I don't want her to die. So I've got to do something to protect these people because they're her people and I love her. Look at how Mordecai explains the whole deal, the whole problem to Esther. Verse 7. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hadhach a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked Hadhach to show it to Esther and to explain the situation to her. He also asked Hadhach, I think that's how you pronounce that, by the way, to direct her, if it's not, and you know Persian, great, you can correct me, to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hadhach returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. There's a huge problem we are going to be exterminated. you got to do something to help us. Now the scene that then comes next, you got to feel, is pretty disappointing for Mordecai to hear. Mordecai's plan doesn't sound all that far-fetched. If I can get to the king's heart, if I can tap into his emotions, if I can tap into his affections, if I can tap into his love, then maybe he'll reverse the decree or he'll do something to protect my people. If I can just show him, if I can let him see in the beauty of his queen's face, if he can see her people in her face, maybe he'll change his mind. And what's delivered next is Esther's going to say, Mordecai, this is not a good plan. I don't think this will work because we're not as close as you think we are. The connection that you're hoping to leverage to save our people is not a very strong one. This is where they get into that desperate situation. This is where everything seems like chaos. It seems like a mess. What a turn of bad luck. But this is when the plan of God starts to unfold. Look at what Esther says to Mordecai, how this may not work. Verse 10. Then Esther told Hadach to go back and to reply this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that everyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited are doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called on me to come to him for 30 days. This dude's been ghosting me for a month. Thank you. You know what? I can always rely on you. Last week with his truth, thank you for sitting in front. If you find anything humorous, will you sit in this zone over here? And then every time I know it's coming, I'm just going to turn this way, okay? And you could hit the laugh button online. No, I don't think we have one of those yet, but Gunnar's going to work on that just to build my self-esteem if I can see a little bit of stuff going on. But clearly what she's saying is, this guy's not connected to me. I haven't talked to him in a month. And then she says, And there's a rule that we have. If I try to intrude and enter into the king's court, I could die. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, wait a second. If that's the policy, how does this guy ever get a meeting with his people? How does this this king ever get a meeting with the, the governors and the rulers? I mean, he has a vast empire. Isn't there middle management in this thing? How do those people get to him? Well, what we know of how things worked in the Persian Empire in the ancient world is that there was a way to get into the inner court of the king. You had to make a request. But Esther doesn't mention that. And the reason I think she doesn't mention that is because that's not very helpful either. 
Just imagine if you're Esther. Okay, I haven't seen him in 30 days, but I need to get a request in and I can't DM him. You didn't even laugh at that one. Okay. Anyways, right? I, I, I can't direct message him. I can't email him. I can't get in. I have to write out my request. I got to give it to some intermediary. Okay. So when it says, why do you want to meet with the king? Okay. What do I put in that box? Well, I'm a Jew. My people are about to die. A decree has been given for all my people to be eliminated. I'd like to request that that not happen. Then she's got to hand that off. Here, I hope it gets to the king. Middle management is going to take that and be, what? The queen is Jewish? We already have a plan to kill them. Kill her. Do you see that she's in this kind of catch-22? What do I do? I can't make a formal request. Man, the only option would be really to intrude in the inner court. It's to jump in. But if I do that, I could die. And she knows why she's queen. Why is she queen? Because the last one got dismissed because she broke the rules. What's going to happen to Esther? What could she expect for herself if she broke the rules? So she tells Mordecai, I don't think your plan is going to work. I mean, I would have to basically intrude into the inner court and maybe, just maybe, he'd extend mercy to me. Think of your Mordecai at this point. Wouldn't there be like this sinking feeling of like, oh my gosh, I thought you guys were close. I've been following you on Instagram and like all these beautiful photos of hearts and you got a hand, he's got a hand, it's so pretty, right? Like I thought you guys were good. You're not put together. Uh-oh, what are we going to do? And this is where our big idea comes in. No accidents, only providence. Mordecai's advice to Esther is going to give her courage. Courage to take a risk. A risk that will save her people later. So I'm spoiling the end of the story, but I want this moment to be captured for us. Mordecai is going to put forward, there is no accident here. God's plan is unfolding. Go be a part of it. Right? Look at what Mordecai says to Esther. Verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace... You will escape when all the other Jews are killed. He starts out kind of hard, right? What a loving fatherly advice here. He tells her, hey, you're not going to escape. They're coming for all of us, including you. They'll figure it out. So you are in danger. Don't think you'll get away. Now he softens up a little bit and he encourages her to take a risk for the sake of her people. Verse 14. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Notice first, a very strong belief that Mordecai has. Verse 14, if you keep quiet at this time, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. What is he saying here? He's saying God's plan is going to happen. God's plan is going to happen. It's going to work out. It's going to unfold. You could think Mordecai, very clearly a very devout Jew. 
He won't bow in a pressure situation, in a politically pressured situation where he's risking pain. He won't bow to Haman. He's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bow to the image set up by the king of Babylon, and Mordecai is not going to bow. He's a devout Jew, which means he knows the promises of God. He knows the storyline of God. He knows that Abraham was given a promise, promised that, that his people, his lineage would be a blessing to the nations. That got more and more clear with Moses and with David that there would be a hero, a hero that would come, a prophet and a king, a Messiah who would come and he would reign and he would bless the world. He knows the prophets as he's read them, as they've been delivered, as he's heard as the people were leaving in exile and even as they were in exile, he heard the prophets. Most of the prophets are done at this time in their ministry. So he has basically almost all of the Old Testament. He has probably at least got some of the prophetic message that a king is coming and that God will bring about a world dominion one day where Messiah will reign as king. So he knows that the people of God can't be extinguished. They can't be fully eliminated because they make it all the way to the end. And Messiah comes through them and the promise to Abraham is going to get all the way to the nation. So he knows somehow God's plan won't be stopped. So Esther, if you jump in or not, God's not at a loss. God's plan will unfold. But notice what he also believes. Not only is God's plan going to happen, not only can God's plan not be frustrated, but you could be a part of that plan. This is where he sees providence. He says, maybe you were brought, right, to be a queen, made queen for such a time as this. You know, the plan of God doesn't make Mordecai lazy. It gives him courage. You can be a part of this. You see how he's holding these kind of two ideas in tension? God has a plan. His plan will unfold that cannot be frustrated. And you can be a part of it. This is where we learn that, that God is not desperate for your assistance. But he wants to invite your involvement. You're not needed, but you're wanted. Let me give you an example. In our family, we, we love to cook, and my wife is a phenomenal cook. Phenomenal cook. And my, Dexter, our number three, our, my second uh, son and uh, third child, Dexter, he loves to cook. Loves to cook with mommy, loves to cook with daddy, right? He's, he's, he's a great kid. He's got his own little apron and chef's hat. It's super cute, right? He loves to get involved. Well, on Saturdays, sometimes Saturdays, that's when daddy makes breakfast. Daddy makes pancakes. We do all this kind of stuff or waffles, something like that. Daddy makes some stuff. Well, Dexter likes to join in. Now, do I need Dexter? No. In fact, it's a lot easier when he doesn't help. We get less egg shells in the batter, right? I don't need that four-year-old to be my sous chef, right? I don't need him for that. But do I want him? Yeah, I do. Even when I crunch that eggshell in the waffle. <laughs> oh, Dexter, right? But I love it. I, I want him involved. This is kind of the idea that's happening here. That God is not at a loss if you don't join him. But you're at a loss if you don't join him. And that's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Esther, God has a plan. And that plan isn't dependent upon you. But you can be a part of that plan. God will deliver. 
He will deliver. Somehow the promise of Messiah will come. Somehow the blessing of the nations will come. Everything he's told us will happen, will transpire. This line will continue to go through and a blessing to the nations will happen. We'll make it to the end. But I'm seeing in this season right now that you could play a pivotal part of that plan unfolding. Esther, jump. Go. Take courage. Now Esther's reply shows us she has confidence. It also shows us that she has clarity, that she doesn't know how this thing will actually unfold. She knows there are plan. She knows there is a plan, but she's not certain if the outcome won't be painful for her. Right? Look at her reply. When Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, she said, go, gather all of the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, again, she's very much like her guardian here. He knows when to obey the law and when to break the law. And she's going to break the law of man in order to uphold the law of God. Though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. If I must die, I must die. Now the story ends, she doesn't die and the people of God are preserved. But see that moment? She was never told. She was never assured. Mordecai didn't tell her, hey, I promise the plan of God is unfolding. If the plan of God is unfolding, that it'll be absent of pain for you. It doesn't say that. And it's a very sobering reality for us to take in on this as well. God has a plan for every single detail of your life. Every single event of your life, even those painful moments, even the moments when he permitted him and he was weeping as you were feeling the pain in those moments. Just because God has a plan doesn't mean everything in that plan pleases him. Doesn't mean he's clapping and applauding as he sees the suffering of his people. But we can't say that they are not a part of the plan of God. And praise God, he can use that pain, turn that pain Take that pain and use it in a beautiful way. The the idea that God has a plan for every detail of your life doesn't mean that he'll take all the pain out of your life. But what it means is he'll infuse purpose into every part of your life. Every part of your life. There are no accidents. There are no ordinary events. There are no unintended, uncomfortable, unfortunate, you are not a victim of bad Luck, there is providence painted over every piece of your life. And that can give you courage. That can give you confidence. All right, I know there's a plan, but soberly I know that plan may be pain. But at least that pain's got purpose. At least that pain can be used. At least God can still move in that pain. Notice, Jesus made a very similar promise to his disciples. This is Mark chapter 13, verse 11. Look at the balance here. It's very much in balance, I think, with what Mordecai said and how Esther responded. There's a plan. God has providence. God's going to intervene in this very scary moment for these disciples. But notice what Jesus is not going to promise them. He promises them providence, but he does not promise that they will be free from pain. Look what Jesus said to his earliest followers. Mark chapter 13. But when you are arrested and you stand trial, this is a terrible moment. Here's chaos. Things are out of control. Everything's a mess, right? 
Don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Providence will happen. Even in this moment, when you're sitting there in shackles, and they are about to try and convict you, don't worry. Providence is there. God will speak through you. He promised them words, but he didn't promise that they would be acquitted. What's the next thing he says? A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. A child will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. See the balance there? Oh, there's providence. God intervenes. God steps up. God invades. There are no accidents. There's not a mess. We're not victims of bad luck. There's providence, but there's also the forecast of potential pain. And this matches what we know of the first century followers of Jesus Christ. They weren't all acquitted. In fact, many of them were sentenced, and many of them died. God truly gave words, even songs, for his martyrs to sing while they suffered. It wasn't chaotic. It wasn't a mess. God's providence was right there. Just imagine how different your life would be if you saw every day as marked by providence and not accident, by intentionality, painted with purpose, that you never met an ordinary per- person or, or, or you never encountered just a freak event, but that God was literally orchestrating every piece of your life, that no event in your life slipped past his sovereignty. But everything was written like a poem rhythmically getting to the end. Imagine how your outlook on everyday life would change. Imagine how you would view the tantrum of your two-year-old differently. I had moms groaning first service like, "Mm, no pastor, don't go there. Man, I'll tell you what, last two weeks I'm there. My two-year-old's cute. But he's a jerk. Yeah. So my wife's like, amen, preach. Come on, keep going, pastor. Right? I tell you what, he's punching the four-year-old. He's saying no to mommy. He runs away from daddy. And I'm faster than him. Like, off the line, I'll dust that kid. Right? But he gets under chairs and couches. Like, I ain't about that life. I'm like army crawling under a chair. I'll just wait till you hit your head because you're a goob. And then I'll pull you out when you're crying. Oh, now you want daddy. I get it. Now you want daddy. All right, let's get a butterfly bandage. Let's get that scar going. Right? But, but I tell you what, imagine how you would see, even, I know, even in that, that raw detail of the tantrum of your two-year-old, but that's not an accident. That's not unintended. There's providence over that. There's a moment there that God wants you to capture. If you saw providence in every part of your life, you'd be so optimistic and so opportunistic. You would see every moment as somehow God wants me to do something. Right? When Mordecai says to Esther, for such a time as this. We got to say that when that two-year-old is punching our four-year-old. For such a time as this. God has put me here to put you down, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? But, but, but seriously, we would take these moments and say, God wants something from this moment. This is not an accident. It's not an inconvenience to my godliness. It's a catalyst to my godliness and his godliness. Somehow the gospel gets brighter, better, more 
beautiful and more vivid to all the other kids in the room, to me and to him. In this moment right now, God has planned this to make the gospel more clear, for this to be a picture of the love of God in Christ Jesus to a fallen world, that if they'll respond to him and come to him and follow him, he'll forgive them of their sins and transform their life. That tantrum right now is a moment of gospel clarity opportunity. Imagine how your entire life and every day will be so incredibly different. Imagine how your workplace conversations would be different. These aren't accidental. Imagine how somebody offending you, saying something to hurt your feelings, how you would view that different. Just imagine how everyday life moments would be so different. How would our city be different if hundreds of people from sunrise saw every day of their life marked by providence and not accidents? What would that do? I want to just, I want to challenge you with a very, very simple prayer. Monday morning. Just pray this prayer. God, help me see what you have for me today. God, help me see what you have for me today. Today is not ordinary. Today is not an accident. Today is providence. Today is an opportunity for godliness. Today is an opportunity for gospel clarity. Today is an opportunity to make your son known. Today is an opportunity to, to, to just show the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's, it's an opportunity and a platform to show the love of Christ. How would Monday be different? Tuesday, Wednesday. May, what, what would happen if God really opened your eyes to those moments? God, help me see what you have for me today man i think this city would change if hundreds of people saw every day marked by providence and not accident now maybe you're here and you're this is your first time here right it's your first time viewing or or you've been here a couple times you're just checking things out checking out christianity you're checking out church maybe you would say i'm just curious about jesus i'll tell you you're not here by accident and you're not an accident. I know you're thinking, Paul, I'm the one who logged on, right? Paul, I'm the one who put my turn signal on, and I came into the parking lot, and I saw the nice uh, lady in her bright vest, and she pointed me to my parking lot. I'm the one who made the decisions to come in here. I know, I know, I know. But I think God is a part of that. I think his plan is unfolding, and I don't think you're here by accident. I firmly believe that God wants, to, God wants you to hear this message. There are no accidents in your life, and you are not an accident. You have a divine creator who loves you. Loves you so much that he orchestrated the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for your sin. His plan unfolded in a painful way for his son because he loved you. And Christ took on the burden of your sin. He died on the cross for you, suffered the agony for all of your shortcomings, weaknesses, and for all those moments that you thought were only hidden in your mind, but were truly hurtful and rebellious thoughts to God. He died for them all, man, all of them. And he joyfully took on that painful burden so you can have an opportunity to be in communion with him forever. Your father, your heavenly father loves you. And you are not an accident. 
You are, you are intentionally crafted and made, beautifully put together to reflect his image. And when he lost you, his heart broke. So he sent his son to die for you, to rise again to give you hope. And you are not here by accident. He wants you to come know him. He wants you to believe in his son and follow him. I'll tell you what, man, you taking that step, you will start to see how all the pain of your past had a plan and a purpose. It didn't please him to see you in pain, but he will use that to sharpen you into a wonderful tool to use for his glory. Friend, you're not an accident. And my hope and my prayer is that you would follow him today. You would follow him today into the rest of the plan that he would have for you. What does God have for you today? The opportunity, forgiveness, and transformation. Don't let that slip. Don't let that opportunity slip. You're the one who will be at a loss if you let it slip. Not him, you will. Take it today. Follow him today. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you that we look at our lives. Oh, and we see what, we, what, what appears so easily from our vantage point is just chaos and brokenness and mess. And it's hard to see the providence. It's hard to see you orchestrating these events of our lives to make us more and more like your son, to, to display for us the hope and the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus and for us to do that to those around us. Oh, Father, capture our hearts by your story of providence. That we would not see any of our lives as accidents. Oh, Father, I... Just pray, Father, that we would step into that prayer. God, show me what you would have for me today. God, show me what you would have for me today. Monday was designed. Tuesday was designed. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of this week are designed for everybody in this room to step into an opportunity to spread the love of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, what would you do with hundreds of people who prayed that prayer? I think you'd answer it. I think that prayer makes you smile. So I pray, Father, you push us, just like Mordecai pushed Esther to see this. She took a risk. She took a risk, and that risk saved her people. Father, we want to take risks because we want to see people saved. And Father, for those in the room who are not yet following you, they're just curious about Jesus. They're just curious about Christianity. Oh, Father, I pray you'd be speaking to them right now. I pray you'd, you'd speak into maybe some of that insecurity that's just welled up in their life because their, their earthly father told them they're an accident. Or their earthly mother told them they're an accident. Or they felt like an accident. They felt like they were just an, an inconvenience to this relationship, which then dissolved into a divorce. And maybe all of their life, they've just wondered, does anybody truly want me? Did I, just, did I just come to be? And now I'm just this mess that people are trying to mitigate and manage. Father, if they're in the room right now, I hope they just hear so clearly from your lips, you are not an accident. I made you. I formed you and I knew you. And I want you back in fellowship with me. And I, I pray, Father, that you'd speak to their heart right now. That they'd come to follow you. They confess their sin. Say, I see it. I see it. I've broken my relationship with God. I want it minute. I want to come back home. Father, you'll bring them in. If that's you in this room, just pray to them. 
just pray to him. In the silence of your heart, you just pray to him. Call him Father. I know it's hard. Call him Father. Say, Father, I love you. I see that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven. I want to follow today. Oh. God, I know if you're hearing that right now, you're pleased and you're smiling in heaven. Be with us, Father. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.